everyone. Welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. As always, we're brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com slash Adherent Apologetics. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Khaldun Aziz Weiss. He's the former chair and currently an associate professor of philosophy at All Harvey College in Chicago. He's also a tutor in philosophy at Oxford. Um, Dr. Khaldun, thank you so much for joining me today. Really excited to talk with you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Zach. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you with talk with you about such an important topic relating to God and the problem of evil and you're just kind of really going through some of your personal reflections through the death of your son. Um, so a lot of great stuff coming up here to talk about. But before we get into that, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do in case people don't know who you are? Of course. Yes. The uh, um, position I'm in as a professor of philosophy started when I was about five years old. Uh, I was given a sign in my class that I could only ask five questions an hour. <laughs> so I began to question everything and everyone and all the presuppositions that people had, especially my teachers as they were teaching me. And I didn't realize as I went into uh, my later years, teen years and college years, that you could actually get paid doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got into philosophy in that realm because I just love the questions behind the questions and what the ideas behind why people um, engage and believe in the things they do. Are these things true and how do they manipulate us and how are we manipulated by them? Hmm. So interesting. So what are some of like your main interests in philosophy and like your professional work and like your writings and such? My doctoral thesis is on cognitive science or philosophy of the mind. And uh, my specialty is in philosophy of religion. I've been writing about that in the last few years and have some books on that specific topic in the area of apologetics. Uh, my specific ministry uh, now is in engaging culture redemptively and dealing with suffering productively, helping people engage with the existential struggles of life anchored in apologetics, which is ultimately anchored in the one who has the truth and who is uh, the good, the true, and the beautiful himself. Mm. So good. So good. So for everyone listening today, what we're going to be doing is um, Khaldun wrote an article a little bit ago talking about like seven things he learned about the problem of evil through the death of his son. We're going to kind of be walking through that, uh, emphasizing different points. Um, so that's in the show notes if you want to kind of follow along with the article. But before we get into like these seven points and what you learned, could you just talk a little bit? You don't have to go into great detail, obviously, but just kind of like about what happened with like your son and what kind of started you like looking into like this problem of evil and death and such like we're gonna be talking about today sure of course the uh i've always been into apologetics um uh, even in my uh, teen years as i became a believer i always wanted to know why i believed what i believed and whether it was true and as i got into uh, philosophy and started researching i became um i started to get to know the lord through an incredible experience and then uh, i started to have friends around me who began to question that experience and ask me detailed questions about the veracity of scripture, the existence of God and things of that nature. So I began to uh, study philosophy and get into apologetics. And now fast forward from there, about 10 years or so, uh, after marriage and kids, uh, we had a little baby boy. His name was Enoch. And Enoch had a serious lung infection and problems with his lungs. He was not able to breathe properly, and the Lord decided to take him. It was a very difficult and dark period in my life, needless to say, my family's life. Mm -hmm. I held his hand as he took a last breath, if, as, as much as he could. 
it drove me into a point where I knew the answers theologically, philosophically, apologetically, but I did not know how to apply them existentially, emotionally, psychologically in my life. It was about a couple of weeks later, I was making coffee in the kitchen and I just collapsed on the floor, and wept like a child in a fetal position. I just didn't know how to process it. And I realized after that experience that just because you have the head knowledge and the academic information, it doesn't mean you can apply that information and put it into a way that makes a difference in your life. So my ministry and my thoughts and my way, grounding in apologetics helped me to see that what I believed was fundamentally true, regardless of the darkness and the emotional turmoil I was in. So it was an anchor I held on to because my emotions told me God is some kind of cosmic joke. Uh, I've been faithful. I've been good. I basically kept the speed limit overall. I, I, I did what I could to be a good man, and yet this happened. So it, it really shattered that internal, inconsistent, theological, um, animistic view of God that was more pragmatic than it was theologically, biblically, exegete, exegetically correct, that God is there to serve me. And if I do things, God, and I pull the cosmic lever, God will reward me with his goodness and good wife and a good child and good health and good house, maybe a good car too. And that kind of mentality is just not how the world works. It's not how God works. I am here to serve him, not him to serve me. And he does his greatest work through the tragedies of life. Um, and this is an experience I've learned through a hard way. And I'm trying to help other people come out of their own darkness, their own caves, uh, through the fire that burned me. God has made it into a torch that I can use to help guide people out of their own caves out of the own wounds, the wounds that I have experienced in my life can become um, a healing balm for others. At least mm -hmm. that's my hope. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your story and just being uh, candid through this. I can't imagine how um, hard of a process this, this process this would be with you. Um, I do completely agree with you that God can use um, the deepest tragedies for so good. I reflect on the death of a friend who passed away a few years ago, and there's just been so much um, good for the kingdom that's kind of come out of that. But with your story, I want to start talking about the uh, <laughs> It's all good. Don't worry about it. It happens. It's technology. Um, but with these seven things that um, you kind of learned, the first thing that you talk about is that they cannot be evil unless there is God. So I'm curious, could you just talk about that for a little bit? Sure. So uh, in the article that I have published in Christianity Today, uh, the one you have linked there, was uh, a seven things I thought would be helpful to understand in the process of um, exegeting the problem of evil, per se. Now, the problem of evil by Epicurus and other great thinkers of the past has basically summarized the basic contention as follows. If God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, then he would know that there is evil. He would be not... Uh, good that means he's beneficent he would be able to want to stop evil and he's omnipotent meaning he can alas there is still evil therefore there's a problem either there's no god or he's missing some of these attributes anyway there's so much more to the problem of evil i'm actually writing now on the concept of evil in a book i'll be publishing soon called uh, gazing into the abyss uh, mm -hmm. how to address the concept and the problem of evil uh, the the first thing um, in understanding that process is to first recognize that there cannot be the very concept of evil unless evil itself 
is grounded in what is good. And you cannot have that grounding unless there is a way that things ought to be. And there can't be a way things ought to be unless there is a standard paradigm or a structure or a blueprint in the universe beforehand that makes things right. Therefore, so you can actually look at that and say, ah, so this is right and wrong. You can't have that unless you have a straight line to measure all other lines with. And God is the absolute of the absolutes from which we measure everything else. So you cannot have even the concept of an objective ap evil unless you have an objective standard from which to measure it from. And that would be the very, the very throne of the very one who is goodness himself, God. Mm. Well, thank you for that. And I'm, I'm curious, like one thought is the evil God challenge where it's the idea that like maybe God is just maximally evil instead of maximally um, good. You obviously talk about we need this objective nature of God um, who's, who's perfectly good um, to have this idea of like a concept of evil. But like, how would you respond to like an evil God challenge where it says like, why couldn't God be um, perfectly evil in a sense? So Stephen Law philosopher in England had, had written about that. Yeah, I'm familiar with his writing. The problem is in order for you to postulate an evil God, you have to assume there's such a thing as a maximally great good in the universe from which to say this thing here, this being is evil. On what standard is he evil? Remember, evil is a deviation from the way things ought to be. It's not the way things should be. At least all philosophers are going to agree with that. This is just bad. It's mm -hmm. terrible. Then there should have been a way things should be, right? You mean mm -hmm. ultimate perfection? And Descartes and Anselm and the great thinkers in philosophy and uh, in history of Greek myth, and also in the great theistic religions as well, who all postulated, in order for you to even have a grounding for that, you need to have something above it that's holy, good, true, mm -hmm. eternal, beautiful, perfect. Mm -hmm. Ah, so you are assuming a good God so you can postulate your evil God. And technically speaking, as C.S. Lewis wrote very well in Mere Christianity, you cannot have two gods exist in the same plane of existence. It's impossible. Imagine tr both of them trying to arm wrestle. <laughs> they, both they won't win or play chess. They can't possibly win because the other knows what the other will play before he plays it. <laughs> it's a constant paradox that throws you into a loop, mentally speaking. Two omnipotent, omniscient, perfect beings cannot exist in the same realm. And one of them cannot be evil because evil is a deviation on the way things ought to be. He would not be God. He would be some kind of demigod or some kind of demonic demon or some sort. Mm. Thank you for that. And I do want to say I saw already one question. We will be doing a little bit of Q&A at the end. Uh, so feel free yeah. to put your questions, super chats in the live chat. Uh, but I do want to move on to the second thing here where you talk about um, the logical problem of evil and you just say that the problem of evil isn't a logical impossibility um, with contrast to the existence of God. You know, there's someone like, I believe it was J.L. Mackey who put out the problem, the logical problem of evil in the 1950s or 60s, I believe, where it's like uh, the existence of evil is just, um, it, it's just not possible to exist with an all loving, all good um, God. But like when you looked at like the logical problem of evil um, with the reflection of knowing um, your son's passing, like what did you learn? Right. The uh, the problem of evil becomes a, an issue because it's a, the free will defense uh, postulated by Elvin Plantica. El answers very well, and all the major philosophical schools of thought agree that Plantica answered that very well with his free will defense. Uh, Swinburne, and that goes back to Augustine and Aquinas as well. That gives you an adequate answer to the, uh, the, the, the actions of man 
among each other, the, the vileness and the malevolence of each other could be adequately answered given the free will defense. Meaning God, if he were to create beings other than himself, who are maximally, or at least highly good, that goodness requires freedom to choose to act. And then that freedom requires that he must also have the freedom to say no to God and to choose evil. So planting his um, free will defense helps adequately answer the problem of evil, where you can have a good God who can create a universe, but he also is limited, even in the goodness and the maximally great omnipotent powers of God are also limited because that limit means that if God creates, automatically he creates limits. The beings he creates are not him and they're not maximally perfect like him. Therefore, they must have the ability to be able to do things that are considered ungodlike, which is the very definition or the very connection to evil. So free will defense answers that um, problem well. Um, the, the problem with the free will defense is that it doesn't help address natural sufferings like cancers or tsunamis mm -hmm. or the death of my son. I mean, what evil, what free will did he have in this process? It was a genetic abnormality that ultimately led to him losing breath and ultimately losing his life. The free will defense did not help in that regard. You need to go beyond that. Um, and that maybe we can unpack that a little later. Yeah, I'd love to unpack um, natural evils here in a second. But I do want to ask um, one thing while we're on the free will defense very uh, briefly here, but like, what's so great about free will? I've heard skeptics recently say, like, you know, um, wh why was why is free free will so great? Um, couldn't God just created us with maybe like a few less choices to maybe like do evil um, and still have like some sense of freedom or something like that? Like, what makes free will so great um, in terms of the free will defense to the problem of evil? Augustine summed it up in one word: love. Mm. In order for love to exist in the universe, you must have the option for your fiance to say no. You must have the option for the mother to not choose to be with her child and to suckle her child and to, or the father to sacrifice his life in the fire. He must have that choice. If he doesn't have that choice, then he is not ultimately um, uh, giving in to the goodness that is around him or to the obligations around him. So the free will is so essential for us as beings to choose to be like the ultimate source of that freedom, God himself. Mm -hmm. Secondarily, on a deeper level, uh, Zach, the very um, creating of other beings by the omnipotent, perfect being, by definition, creates beings that are less than him. Mm -hmm. These beings that are less than him must be able to have some kind of semblance of a choice that goes against the very creator himself. Mm. Otherwise, they are the cosmic, robotic, mechanistic androids that we want the world to be in. Uh, Leibniz said, this is the best of all possible worlds. And Plantica said, well, there's always a little bit, an extra flower you can add something to make it a little better. <laughs> yeah, so technically it never ends. There's always something better. But I, I, I like the concept that if I knew um, if I had the power of God, I would change a lot of things. I would change poverty. Mm -hmm. I would change sexual slavery. I would change, uh, you know, I'll, I'll have a vaccine for the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. but if I had the wisdom of God, I would leave things just as they are. Mm, so good. Uh, with the Leibniz thing, very briefly, I have a friend that is convinced 
at the moment, though, he's going to change the God has no free will, kind of like Leibniz on that argument and such. But we've been talking about that. It just came to mind. But uh, let's go back to natural evil. Um, you know, you talk about like the death of your son with this just like genetic uh, disorder. Um, or maybe you could talk about like, you know, we have if we accept an old earth, we have millions of years of just natural evil and seemingly no free humans during this time. Like so when you look at like the problem of natural evil, like when you studied and looked at this, like where did you end up with regarding this question? It is always troubling to me to hear over a million souls killed in the Haiti earthquake. Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, and to see people dying of debilitating diseases from birth or child children and their parents weeping and fasting over them in the cancer wards. These things deeply trouble me. And they deeply trouble the Lord, too. If you watch and read the, uh, the, the Gospels, you'll see Jesus weeping and, um, and having um, some, some troubles at an existential level with some of the problems in the universe and the world. Augustine said that natural evil is answered by some kind of a demonic influence on a natural level where they influence the earthquakes and tectonic shifts and things of that nature. So there's still some kind of free will there on a spiritual plane that's affecting the physical plane. Uh, that's an interesting thought. Another avenue to say is that God strategically created the world, what Kelvin and others would argue, in a way that makes it uninhabitable at certain times, either genetically or tectonic ways or in anthropology, so that we ultimately can turn to him. It is the divine plan of God to make it strategically uncomfortable to the point of even pain, suffering, and death to recognize that this life is all there is. Mm. It is his megaphone to rouse a dead world, as Lewis would say. I think natural evil is one of the ways God uses to do that. And his mysterious wisdom, he does it. it uh, a lot of these answers don't provide emotional mm -hmm. and existential support. But it does make me say to myself, this world isn't all there is. And sooner or later, I will lose it all. And I have to hold on to the anchor that is eternal, that will never be gone and never lose and never changes. So I'm curious, how would you respond to like maybe a more evidential form of the problem of evil? Obviously, the logical form is very rarely used, but a lot of people will say, you know, suffering, like say the death of your son is kind of like what we'd expect under atheism, but it wouldn't be what we'd expect under like an all-knowing, all-loving God. Um, so like atheism would be more probable than theism. You've uh, you've dealt with the existential problem. I'm curious of what you think um, some of the solutions put forward for it are. Um, what, what did you have in mind before I jump into mine? With the like evidential problem? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm kind of just curious. What did you think of those? What do I think? Oh no, you can't put the target on me. I mean, the evidential problem of evil is definitely it's it's probably the best argument for atheism, at least in my opinion. But I mean, I think a couple things I think of is like why assume atheism is true in the first place like maybe even if you were to grant like the evidential problem of evil you still have things like fine-tuning or moral realism or the applicability of mathematics or like there being something rather than nothing which would definitely make theism more probable than atheism in my opinion and then you know we could talk about theodicies and why um there we would think there's greater than good so that's kind of like my quick response being yeah, right, right. Right. yeah you, you shift the uh, burden to the other areas of life that don't make sense without it um you take the example of the things that you're talking about here what comes to mind is um atheism has a multiplicity of different 
cracks in a system, in the very structure of a system that cause it to be completely implausible. I mean, I could go on and on about consciousness and design like you talked about, uh, the, uh, the explanation of beauty and love in the universe and morality and logic and ethics and yada, yada, yada. Eth revelation, excuse me, atheism has a very weak understanding of how to ground these in an ontological level. Theism has one major problem, and that is evil. Mm -hmm. we have to address this issue now, the question is, which ones are you going to deal with? Are you going to d dismiss all the atheistic ones and embrace this one? Um, the Also, in the, in the existential issue, it also comes back to a logical one, because they're assuming on that problem that God would not, in his infinite goodness, be able to create a world that it, or God's in his infinite goodness must be able to create a world that is also uh, has free will and all people always choose goodness. No, that doesn't work. We have shown theistically, philosophically, theologically, that God can create a world that does still have evil and God is still off the hook in that regard because you, you cannot create certain things unless those things themselves are free. And that freedom goes back to the logical problem of evil. I think the existential problem links back to the logical problem of evil. And you're assuming that God cannot do that. And that is the height of arrogance, that you have some kind of um, insight into the divine prerogative that he cannot or will not do something until I understand it. Mm. Um, one last thing I want to talk about. We've talked about the logical problem, the evidential problem. Let's talk about the emotional problem um, for a second. I know this is something that was more personal in your life. Like we can have all these great theodicies or reasons to believe that, you know, suffering and the existence of God aren't incompatible, but a lot of times they don't really help on the emotional level. So for someone that's kind of dealing with like the emotional pro problem of suffering, like what do you recommend? Like, is there a place to turn or is there a right thing to say? Or like, how do we deal with this emotional problem? Right. So I don't recommend you just break out uh, Frederick Nietzsche and a bottle of whiskey and a pistol next to you as you are reflecting on this. Uh, that won't end well. <laughs> uh, the, the emotional problem of evil is a, an issue we need to address because we are, guess what, emotional beings. And mm. David Hume said it the best that the mind brings about, excuse me, the emotions or the heart brings about the decision you want and brings along the mind to justify those decisions. Mm. If I want to buy a Harley, I'll, and then the more intelligent I am, the more creative I am, I will come up with reasons of why I need a Harley mm. because of my emotional desire to have it. Now, on this issue with evil, I have a strong desire to feel loved, feel accepted, find comfort, and find peace. And that is a natural good thing. The problem is, is when I replace the ultimate with the temporal, such as my car, my house, my family, or even my son. And when I put these on the scale, ultimately my Isaac becomes more important to me than my God. And that's where God steps in and says, no, I may have to ask you to sacrifice that, Isaac, because there's something greater in play here. And God will do everything he does and he can to reach your heart, including touching the things you find most sacred. And one of the things that helps me deal with that better is that the scriptures say in Hebrews that do not forsake the gathering together of the saints. God told Adam in the Garden of Eden, it is not good for man to be alone. 
one of the ultimate punishments we can put people in after they break the law enough, they're caught and put in, in, into an isolation of prison, they're put into solitary confinement. That is a form of aloneness. And many of us, after we go through tragedy and pain, are alone. And we keep ourselves alone. And that is a form of internal hell. Cannot allow yourself to be alone. You need other people, godly people who are looking out for you. Godly people who want the best for you. Godly people who will speak the words of truth. Godly people that will tell you you're special and, and sacred and that you are made in the Imanago day itself. God himself loves you and he has prepared a specific place for you in heaven and for your son to meet you again because David said that. Although he cannot come to me, I will go to him. And I have that anchor in my life that I cannot go bring Enoch back to me, but one day I will walk with him on streets of gold. And because Jesus himself rose from the dead, and there's evidence historically, archaeologically for this, and, and because I believe this and I ground it in the arguments, not just my own emotional whirlwinds, that mm -hmm. I will also rise and so will he, and we will see each other again. There is hope. There is a resurrection, and in my flesh I shall see him, as Job said. Mm -hmm. So well put. Um, one thing that kind of comes to my mind here is for someone like Enoch, it's amazing that we have the promise that um, you'll reunite with him again in, in the next life. But one pushback I see a lot from skeptics is, you know, a lot of times as Christians, we I mean, it's very biblically sound that, you know, babies would go to heaven, people who don't have the chance to freely choose Christ um, in this life. And they um, we'll end up in heaven, but we're stuck here in a sense with like all this suffering and such. Um, so uh, what just like, I, it seems like this kind of like, um, parrot, I don't know if I call it a paradox, but you have, like, we talk about the value of free will. And then for a lot of maybe babies who die before they get the chance to know Christ, they don't have the free will, um, to choose Christ in this life, but they still end up in heaven. So if that's true, what's so great about free will? So I'm curious your thoughts on that. Um, briefly. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Good one. Good questions. You're asking some very uh, poignant ones there, Zach. The the question on whether children um, make it to heaven or not. You know, there's a Calvinistic perspective that argues that God chooses who ends up in heaven, not us ultimately. So there may actually be infants and others who may not make it to heaven, which I find to be morally repugnant, uh, because um, on a theological spectrum, when you look at the concept of sin. Uh, there are different types of sins and theology of uh, Catholic theology specifically makes it more um, adamant where you have that type of sins where you are morally guilty based on the legal status that you have in the race itself, such as original sin. And then there's a type of sin where you are guilty based on moral culpability, where you act on that sin. Um, the um, vicarious suffering of Christ, I think, covers the first for the, for, for the human race where Christ died for all. But not for the second group. The second group has a choice after they have committed the acts of uh, treason against God, which we call sin, they have a chance to repent. So I think the first group may be excluded from that, which may include people such as who are mentally disabled, who are not able to make cognitive decisions or die in abortions. Uh, which we cannot ignore the the, the, the Holocaust on that area. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one way that I would help uh, helps me address that. Mm. Yeah, thank you. I'm all in this perspective is definitely great here. Um, your third point as we go, um, just through your reflections, is that God didn't create evil. It lacks an ontological status. Um, so it's a really interesting point here. Could you talk a little bit about like what, what's going on here? 
Sure. Um, I'm just going to talk about, for example, one of my friends, Joe, when his daughter, Lulu, complained that he brought darkness into her room. He did no such thing. He didn't bring darkness into Lulu's room. She was his daughter, right? He just took mm. away the light. Mm. Evil is a lack of goodness. Is darkness is a lack of light. There can be absolute good, but there cannot be absolute evil. As I mentioned mm -hmm. to you earlier with your example of the, uh, the evil God challenge, right? Mm -hmm. So objective evil cannot exist if atheism is true. Pantheism, Buddhism, Hinduism in general claim evil is an illusion or a delusion. <laughs> However, rape, murder, child abuse, greed, human brutality, kidnapping, slavery are objectively evil. They're not illusions per se. Now consider cosmologically that the further we move away from the sun, the colder and darker it gets. Whilst theologically, the farther we move, move away from God, the source of all goodness, truth, and holiness, the colder and darker it gets spiritually. So although Lulu once waits for the light, but when the sun arrives in the morning, all darkness will flee. So in Christ, when he arrives and he comes back, he, all darkness will flee from him. All evil will flee from him. And he will be able to restore to, him, to us the endemic paradise that was originally set forward. So when Enoch died, it was very dark and cold for me emotionally, as it was for Christ on the cross. But in coming close to the source himself, I find the warmth of his peace and know that in his hands there is comfort because those hands, hear me clearly, are pierced hands. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much, Kaldun, uh, for that. It's been so helpful for me. Um, is just looking into the problem of evil, realizing that evil isn't um, in an objective sense real. It's more of just an absence of good. And I appreciate you bringing that up um, in your article. Your fourth point is that not all evil is sin. Um, it is evil for a baby boy to die, but it's not sin. Um, it's an interesting point you bring up here. I'd be curious um, as we keep on going. Can you talk a little bit about this point here? Sure. So, so sin is an act of voluntarily violating the will of God or breaking his holy transcendent commands or the principles that God set forward for us. Crossing the divine boundary is sin. There are certain things that we do, Zach, that once we do them, you can never go back. Okay, like adultery is one of those, and there, there's a, a few of those are murder. And there are certain things where you can repent and, and restore some things, other things you can't. There are numerous, there are sins that are too numerous to mention, but there's two basic kinds. There's a sin of omission, not doing what you should be doing, such as maybe your homework or fulfilling uh, <laughs> responsibilities of a father, etc. And then there's the sin of commission that James talks about, where you are not, you're specifically doing what you shouldn't be. Mm. So an evil event like an earthquake cancer or a doctor accidentally cutting a brain stem of a child or my my son's uh, heart is that lungs not being able to function is not is not sinful per se it's evil but it's not sin evil as rc sproul said it well is not good but it is good that there is evil hmm. god uses all kinds of evil to bring about good and he promised in romans 8 28 that he will bring about the good of those who love him ultimately because he will bring he is himself the source of goodness for everything that happens to you he will ultimately bring that out um the, the concept of evil is not necessarily the same thing as the uh, sin, per se. So I hope that's, uh, that's clear. Mm. Yeah, um, we're going to go through 
these last few points here, and then we're going to answer a few live questions. Um, there's a couple, and if there's any more, we'll be sure to get to those. Um, but your fifth point is such an interesting point, and it's so easy to forget, but I think it's so important. And it's, it's the idea that not all suffering is evil. Um, you talk about a lot of people who've suffered a lot and goods come out of it, but like what, what's going on here with not all suffering um, is evil? Sure. So as I indicated in the article, the, the Apostle Paul, Abraham Lincoln, even uh, non-believers like Gandhi, Churchill, Luther, even um, Steve Jobs, the inventor of the iPhone, suffered a lot in life and overcome almost impossible odds. But it was in the suffering itself that greatness came. It was in the crushing of that lemon that you saw that incredible lemonade that was made. Um, it's in the crucible of suffering that our characters formed. It's God's modus operandi or his ultimate instrument to mold his people. No athlete, let me hear the hear me clearly on this, no matter what their natural disposition is, grows and becomes an Olympic one without disciplining his body with suffering. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been to the gym a lot. You go to the gym, you don't see a lot of people smiling as they're lifting those weights and other, they're <laughs> suffering because they're choosing to suffer for a better result. And I love this poem by Robert Browning Hamilton which brings it all together for me. Mm. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and not a word said she, but all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Such a beautiful um, poem there talking about how our suffering uh, in this life can be, bring so many greater goods, even though at the time it can seem so dark. Uh, your sixth point is evil is not answered in the cross if, if, if it was not God on it. Such a powerful um, thing as Christians we can talk about um, God taking the flesh and going onto the cross and experiencing the evil in this world. Uh, but like, what do you think um, in terms of God and the power of the cross uh, with regards to the problem sure. of evil? So if you were to class, so I teach classes on world religions, Zach, and I'm fascinated always when I'm researching Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Zoroastrianism, and others when I'm reading about their gods and their deities and their demigods. And then I read about Jesus. So what I see there is these leaders in the world religions are like candles that light the night for people out of uh, moral darkness, where they teach them how to live environment well, how to treat their wives well, how to build a better community. They're lights in the darkness. They're candles. That's what these world leaders are and these uh, religious leaders. And then you have Jesus, who is like the sun. You can't even see the other lights when he's there. Mm. And what makes him so incredibly bright, right, is because he suffered. He was broken. His limbs were ripped. He bled for us. And that makes him human in a way that most of us can really relate to, but divine too, to be able to take the wrath of God and still stand at the end with the resurrection. And I love how one of my favorite philosophers and good friends, philosopher Peter Kreeft said it like this. If that is that, God, not there on the cross. If that's only a good man, then God is not on the hook, on the cross, in our suffering. And if God is not on the hook, then God is not off the hook. How could he sit there in heaven and ignore our tears? There mm -hmm. is, as we say, and we saw, one 
good reason for not believing in God, evil. Mm. And God has answered this objection, not in words, but in deeds. Jesus is the tears of God. Such a powerful message. Um, when you think about it, you know, with the problem of evil, we have God taking on the flesh um, and experiencing everything we did in pain and suffering and sin, though he did not sin. Um, it's just so beautiful. And it's something that makes me so uh, just amazed that I'm a Christian and just feel so grateful for knowing that we have a God that like that. Uh, what an amazing thing. I am thing. so grateful. I am so, yeah, I'm filled with gratitude when I think about this. It's just, it's just yeah, it's wonderful. It's so beautiful. Um, and the seventh point that you bring up is something so important that I think kind of wraps up this conversation well, is that evil is not someone else's responsibility. Um, so could you talk about that? It's a very great point you have here. Sure, sure. Uh, so it's always easy for me to blame somebody else, whether it's Donald Trump, <laughs> blame him for everything, right? Uh, or whether it's my mama or my daddy who mistreated me or my teacher who gave me a bad grade or my environment or the sociological situation I grew up in. or the, you know, All these things can be blamed for things. Some people are legitimately have um, situations in their culture and their community that, that, that are militantly against them. Mm. The greatest one that's against you, by the way, is yourself. That is the one you need to deal with the most. And you need to take responsibility for that on your own. And once you deal with the inner Hulk, and I, I love comics and I love the Marvel Universe, and the, the, the Hulk character, uh, the, who David Banner, the scientist, has to constantly fight against the inner Hulk within him, which is the Jekyll and Hyde. You need to take responsibility for that, not keep blaming other people. For that, I think that's one of the ways we can expand and move forward in life. And the church itself tries to be the hands and feet of God to the world around us. We're not to ignore the suffering of the people around us, the poverty. Now with the corona issue that's going on, you can see a lot of people that you may know personally who are lining up at food kitchens. Not only are they lacking food, but probably gifts for their kids. Maybe you can step in and buy that little fire truck for that little boy. Maybe you can step in and spend some time with that disabled child that the mother needs some time away from. Maybe you can you know, take in precautionary measures, of course. Maybe you can mow the lawn of that person that needs it or take the, uh, the snowblower out and do the, the, the people down the streets uh, snow on their yard. You can be the hands and feet of Jesus. Stop blaming other people for evil and take responsibility for it because God mm -hmm. specifically left that for us. Now, <laughs> With that said, let me. Um, uh, there's something from the Brothers Karamazov, which I find incredibly helpful. Dostoevsky, which I recommend the book if you could get through it, <laughs> uh, said the following I believe that a child, this goes back to the natural suffering issue that we raised earlier. I believe that a child that's suffered will be healed and made up for. And all the humiliating absurdities of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like a despicable fabrication of the mm. infinite and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. And that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice to say that all hearts, for all the comforting and all the resentments, for, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make not only possible to forgive, but it will justify all that happened. Mm -hmm. We will come to a point, is what he's saying, 
when we will be able to see in the light of the cross that whatever it is that's happened in the universe will be able to be explained and justified as we look at the suffering Savior and we become the hands and feet of Christ to the suffering world around us. Mm, so good. Um, I just finished reading um, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper just last mm. night. Amazing book. I don't know. Have you read it? I have not. I've read his other book, um, Desiring God, which every Christian should read before they die, by the way. Uh-huh. Yeah, read that one. And then when you're through that one, that John, this is probably the second best book that John Piper wrote. Yeah. And then last in the last chapter, he talks about um, Christian evangelicals on average have given about 4% of their income over the past like four decades, um, which I read that and it, it kind of left me disheartened. Like if we're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus, uh, I feel like we should be giving. I mean, it, it's not about legalism here, but we should be giving a lot more than that. Like I feel like you know, we're called to serve and love the poor. And if that's all we can do, I'm a little bit disappointed. So I just kind of yeah. getting on my soapbox yeah. here after hearing what you talked about. Um, but we'll go to a little bit of Q&A unless, um, and then we'll get these last thoughts and we'll kind of wrap things up here for Caldoon. So thank you so much. We'll go to some questions. Uh, first question is from the programmer. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate your question. Um, they say, what advice would you give to someone who left Christianity due to the suffering they have endured? Hmm. In my philosophy of religion classes, I generally ask the question, what's your spiritual journey? It's the very first question I ask all my students. And it's interesting, I thought, well, I don't have a spiritual journey. No, you have a journey. It has something to do with religion or, or spirituality. What is it? And interestingly enough, the vast majority of the students who told me that they are questioning their faith or leaving their faith or have walked away, it's because of some kind of abuse. Mm. They have suffered or seen uh, perpetuated upon others or in their own life. It is a sad state. What I say is this. It's something when Jesus was talking to Peter, the Lord Jesus, and the, the disciples, and he began to tell them about what they must do to follow him and the suffering they must endure, people began to walk away by the trove. They just left. And they began to talk about things like the, uh, sacrificing his own body and eating his flesh. and That didn't make sense to many. And people just left. And then Jesus says, will you leave too? And Peter says something profound. He says, where you have the words of life, where will we go? When life gets dark, when the suffering becomes unbearable, what are you going to turn to? Hedonism? Materialism? Video games? Alcohol? Drugs? Sex? All these things essentially can provide some kind of relief and an immediacy but in the long term they will leave you bitter angry and alone come back to the light no matter how dark the world is where will you turn to find that turn to the one who himself suffered he knows pain more than any other god and i think he'll be there for you and he's never left you all other worldviews come up bankrupt so good. Um, a question here from Susan. You asked about other people's stories. Now she's curious about your story. Um, were you always a Christian? What What is your story, um, Calhoun? Uh, no. Well, my family are uh, uh, Christians from the Middle East uh, and in mm -hmm. a sociological, cultural level. We're a very rare minority of Jordanian Arab Christians. We're considered traitors by the majority of Islamic 
Christians, uh, the Islamic uh, community there. Um, I came to faith when I was approximately 14 slash 15 years old on a bed of suicide. I really came to know the true living God as I began to question existentially the true meaning of life. So I would say I, I was not always a Christian, no, um, in one level. Uh, sociologically, I was, but at a deep at personal level, no, absolutely not. And I'm constantly struggling in my own life to maintain that that relationship with God and my community and to live like I believe. Mm. Uh, thank you so much for sharing a little bit more of your story. We have one more question here from Carl Williams, which would say, what would you say is some of the other great differences between Christianity and other religions? We talked about um, the cross and the beauty of the cross and God taking the flesh and suffering um, for us in our place. But like, what other differences um, do you see between Christianity and other religions? Sure, uh, Carl, good question. I recommend you take a look at the work that the society that Jesus himself established, who sa he said they shall do greater work than I have, called the church, has done for the world. There is no organization in the history of humanity who has done more good for the world than the church. The church established more colleges, more universities, more humanitarian organizations, more hospitals than any other organization combined. We have today World Vision. We have the Red Cross. We have Compassion International. Um, down my street here in Chicago, I have five hospitals I drive by just to go downtown. Four out of five of them are named after Christ. <laughs> I was at Oxford University. Almost every college has a, has a name of a Christian martyr or a Christian saint or a Christian position behind it. This is not to be ignored. The effect of Christendom upon the world has been a bomb that provided this um, uh, the, for the needs and the, uh, the weak and the broken and the the, the one, uh, the ninety nine percent. The church has done that. There is a difference. The difference is applicable in the way we treat the poor and the people who are different from us. The church has done that. That's one thing you can expand on, other than of course the very nature of Christ Himself, who stands apart from every other real religious leader. The person of Christ, uh, an amazing uh, person to look at. Um, Khaldun, I want to just say thank you so much for all of your time answering all the questions and sub-questions and things that went off script and just everything. It's been so great. Um, is there any like last thoughts, things you didn't get to say, anything um, before we start to wrap things up here? Sure. Let me wrap it up with this. Um, hurt people end up hurting other people. Mm. And if you don't deal with the hurts in your life and the pain and the disappointments, it's really start addressing those. You may need a friend or a therapist or a psychologist or even a pastor to deal with, to work through those and speak them out. You may end up um, letting unleashing those on those closest to you and those you love. You need to address those. You need to talk about those psychologically so that spiritually speaking, you can find cleansing and sociologically speaking, you can find hope and help others out of their own darkness and their own cave. Mm -hmm. We are in a, a cosmic cocoon of life. And if we just trust God through it, the butterfly will emerge. And he promised that he will bring it about. Mm. He will shine like a diamond in the night. Mm. So amazing. Um, Khaldun, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I'd encourage everyone, there's a link below to his website. There's a link to um, the blog where a lot of this show is based off of. Um, and I encourage you can follow Logically Faithful on podcasts or social media. or, or Where else can they people follow you if they want to follow more of like who you are and your work and stuff? 
Yeah, I'm constantly blogging on uh, Facebook or Instagram and other places. Just look up Logically Faithful. I'm all over social media, uh, mm -hmm. trying to make a difference and uh, connect to people out there. Mm. Yeah, so much great stuff, Kaudu. And I want to say thank you for coming onto the show today. I thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I encourage you all to follow Kaudun. If you're new to it here in Apologetics, I'd encourage you to subscribe. We just passed 2,000 subscribers on YouTube, so thank you for that. That was exciting. Um, and just follow along. You can leave a like or a rating if you're listening via podcast. That always helps. And a big thank you, as always, to all our supporters who make shows like this possible at patreon.com slash here in Apologetics. We're about 80% funded with our goal um, for full part-time funding. So appreciate everyone's support that helps make this possible. And one last thing. Thank you so much, Cody, for your time and sharing your story. Uh, so much great stuff, I'm sure, for everyone listening to kind of reflect on. It was wonderful. Zach, keep doing what you're doing. May your tribe increase. May God richly bless you, brother. Mm -hmm. You too, Cody. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in.